Investigators probe a double homicide in Richmond after a daylight shooting. The family wants to find the other pieces of her. Plus, why police are searching Vancouver's Van Dusen Garden in the Chelsea Poorman death investigation. And the contract contention that has Canada's national men's soccer team on strike. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We begin with breaking news. Police in Richmond are investigating a double homicide this weekend in a busy part of the city. Julia Foy is joining us from the scene on Ackroyd Road with the details. Julia, what can you tell us? Well, Nithu, just in the last minute or two, we believe the coroner service has just arrived. Now, police have been here in the center of Richmond. It's very close to number three road, Minaroo Boulevard on Ackroyd, 7,000 block. This is the kind of area where people are out walking, enjoying the city downtown. So for something so violent to happen at around 11 o'clock this morning has left a lot of people shocked. So a number of people called 911 when they heard gunshots ring out just after 11 o'clock this morning when Richmond RCMP arrived. An investigation began and two people were found deceased, a deceased inside what we believe is the parking area of the building. Now, I hit was called in a short time later. They did confirm two people died of gunshot wounds. At this point, they also want to make it clear that they don't believe that this was a random act. We've been chatting with people all day today, but no one wanted to go on camera. This has left the community really rattled. It's a very well-to-do. There's a couple of high-end hotels nearby, restaurants, a local university. So for something like this to have happened, I think has shaken a lot of the community up. Now, on top of this scene, there was something that was discovered a couple of hours later after the initial shooting was called in and it was happening in Surrey. A burnt out vehicle was discovered. We've made a number of calls out to the Surrey RCMP. At this point they are not taking uh, providing any information about that scene but we did also reach out to IHIT. This car was found around 96th and uh, in the Surrey area, and they say that at this point in the investigation, they can't say for sure that the two scenes are connected, but they're alive to the idea that they could be. So after several hours on the scene, police are still here. We expect this investigation to carry on well into the evening. Back to you, Nithu. All right, I'll Julia Foy reporting in Richmond tonight. Thanks, Julia. It's the news loved ones of Trina Hunt have been waiting almost a year and a half to hear. On Friday, police arrested a man in connection with the Port Moody woman's murder back in 2021. The suspect was taken into custody at the home where Hunt lived with her husband. Ramina Dea has the latest details on a break in the case. Witnesses tell us the man in his slippers was quiet. He didn't struggle with police. Trina Hunt's family stunned. Loved ones confirming it's Ian Hunt, Trina's husband. I think they're just overwhelmed and actually relieved with everything that's come down today. Every time you drive up the street, you look at the house, right? So. IHIT will only say one man has been arrested in connection to Trina's death. The arrest at the couple's Port Moody home Friday. No charges have been laid, so police are not releasing a name. 
I think it is a sense of relief, yes. Yeah, just to know that somebody's caught. Just happy, you know what I mean, that something's getting done and they have enough evidence. Residents emotional after one and a half years of no answers. It's been 18 months of asking what happened, who did it, is it safe in our neighbourhood for us and our kids? Like, is her family going to get answers? It's horrific. Hopefully there's a resolution to it. It's sad that it happened, so. Police said Trina's husband reported her missing January 18th, 2021. More than two months would pass before her remains were discovered on a cold Monday morning in Hope, March 29th. Trina's family said Ian had told them they were in Hope visiting a campground and they were on a digital detox, which is why Trina didn't answer her phone. Desperate for answers, Trina's family posted a $50,000 reward for information. My gut is telling me that it's, they will charge the person or persons responsible with Trina's murder. Trina's family in disbelief. They are asking for some space right now to process this enormous news. If charges are laid this weekend, the first court appearance will likely be on Monday. Trina's birthday. She would have turned 50 years old. Romina Dea, Global News. There is still shock in the community from news that police had made an arrest in connection with the homicide of Trina Hunt. An area resident placed flowers outside the Hunt home in Port Moody today, a day after the arrest. While Cindy Height didn't know Trina personally, she, like so many others, have been following the story and was involved in some of the searches for Trina after she was initially reported missing. And um, just wanted to show support to the family. Um, and both sides, honestly, I feel that both sides are going to be really feeling the pain. And I'm just here to pay tribute and support, show my support from my heart, just that we're all in this together. Trina's family told Global News today they intend to put out a statement on Monday, which would have been Trina's 50th birthday, adding the family is grateful for all the support and is requesting time to process this enormous turn of events. In the North Okanagan, police are investigating a deadly shooting in Vernon last night. RCMP responded to a report of multiple shots fired near the 5300 block of 25th Avenue at a residential building in Vernon just before 6 p.m. A 38-year-old man was found with gunshot wounds, but he was later pronounced dead at the scene. Police believe it was a targeted attack and that the victim was known to police. RCMP say at this time there is no risk to public safety. Investigators are looking to speak with any witnesses or anyone with footage of the incident. Vancouver police fanned out through a section of a popular botanical garden in the city today as part of the investigation into the disappearance and death of Chelsea Poorman. Amadagahi has more on what investigators are believed to be focused on in their search. A large-scale search for evidence. Dozens of Vancouver police officers sharply focused on Vancouver's Van Dusen Botanical Garden. This scene Saturday morning is directly related to the disappearance and death of Chelsea Poorman. They showed me where they're searching and they showed me what they're searching with. Lorelai Williams is a strong supporter and advocate for the Poorman family. She says police involved her in their search operation 
which takes place just a thousand meters away from where Poorman's body was found by a contract crew working in the backyard of this multi-million dollar home in April. They were in apartments on the fourth floor and Chelsea came down from there and that's the last known location of Chelsea Poorman. Poorman went missing after a night out on Granville Street, September 6, 2020. The search for her ended more than 18 months later when Vancouver police released details of her discovery, adding investigators were unable to find any evidence of foul play and that a cause of death may never be known. The area where she was discovered is um, rather unkempt and overgrown and it's quite uh, likely and quite plausible that she uh, did uh, die there. Um, shortly after she disappeared and remained there undiscovered. Whoever came to this house with my daughter that night, I ask you to come forward so we, the family, can have closures. Chelsea's mother, Sheila, has previously said part of her daughter's cranium and some finger bones were not recovered when she was found. What I understand is that a lot of coyotes come here, they have dens here, so if a coyote took a part of her, it, they're going to check this area. Vancouver police declined an interview on Saturday and have not said if or how anything found here would change their investigation. Emadagahi, Global News. A flood watch remains in effect for several communities along the Skeena River in northern B.C. This includes Telqua, Smithers, Hazelton, Kispiox and Terrace. And this is an expansion of a flood watch already in place along the Bulkley River. The B.C. River Forecast Centre expects water levels to rise through the weekend. The area is being hit with high temperatures and precipitation with heavier rain in the forecast for the next three days. Those communities are just a few in B.C. on flood watch and advisories right now. Meteorologist Yvonne Shell is keeping an eye on the rising water levels and joins us now. So, Yvonne, what's the latest? Well, we're seeing the steady warm-up, and that's what's increasing the snowmelt and runoff across the region. So, we do have that flood watch that's been issued, or upgraded, rather, for the Skeena and the Bulkley River. As surrounding tributaries, as we had mentioned, through those areas, Smithers, Hazelton, all included within that. And we have a high stream flow advisory that continues for all areas that are in yellow, but it's the flood watch that will be catching very closely. We've got additional rainfall amounts that are going to fall. They'll intensify this evening and continue in towards the morning hours on our Sunday. And with the flood watch, we're seeing the river levels are rising and will, will approach or may exceed bankful. It'll likely peak late Sunday and leading in towards our Monday, but we'll be watching those additional rainfall amounts, all areas, uh, especially towards the interior. And we've got the risk of thunderstorms for tomorrow. I'll have more on that coming up very shortly. Me too. All right. Thanks very much, Yvonne. And from flooding to fires, BC wildfire crews are tackling a large fire near Fort St. John. Crews say the Sikonee Chief River wildfire is burning southwest of Sikonee Chief Canyon Park in the Peace region. The blaze was initially reported last night at 150 hectares, but it's now grown to 500 hectares. No homes or structures are being threatened at this time. The fire is believed to have been sparked by lightning. Missions Board of Education has written to the B.C. NDP government asking it to keep its promise to build a new high school. Back in October 2020, the board chair of Mission Public Schools said the NDP promised that if elected, it would replace Mission Secondary School. 
The election pledge was for a full replacement, not a seismic upgrade or a retrofit. The high school was built in the 1950s in sections and pieces over the years. Recently, the board says it was notified it had to submit a business plan, which came with a number of delays that have cost the district about $200,000. The education ministry says it will reimburse that money, but only once they get approval for the project. So now we're carrying the cost of about $200,000, which means we're not putting that money into other local capital projects. We were told we were going to be getting a new school, and now it's been delayed even further, and um, it's it's getting quite urgent for the students' admission. They they need a more modern learning environment, um, and we need the space. We need to also increase the size of the school. BC's education ministry says it remains committed to a mission secondary school project with seismic mitigation in future budgets. Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth also told a recent Mission Chamber of Commerce meeting that the high school remains in this government's plan. RCMP on Vancouver Island are hoping the public can help identify a female suspect in six knife point robberies in two weeks. The alleged robber was captured on surveillance during the heist in Duncan. On May 14th, police say a suspect hit the Kanko gas station. On May 15th, staff at Heritage Indian Cuisine on Cowichan Lake Road refused to hand over cash to the suspect. 20 minutes later, a Shell gas station was robbed at Knife Point. On May 22nd, the 7-Eleven gas station on Government Street was robbed. Seven days later, the same gas station was hit again. On June 1st, the Chevron gas station was robbed. The female suspect is described as 35 years old and was often wearing green camo pants and a dark jacket. Surrey RCMP are hoping the public can help identify a man who fell from the Patello Bridge. On May 15th, around 11 a.m., Surrey RCMP were called to check on the wellness of a male pedestrian. When police arrived, the man fell and is believed to have not survived. The IIO is investigating and hoping someone can recognize this man, described as 40 to 50 years old, with medium to heavy build and thinning hair. He was last seen wearing a black windbreaker, white t-shirt and blue jeans. Youth in Surrey are helping RCMP and the new police service tackle crime. And this week, they made a fiery bust. On Thursday, youth volunteering with the Surrey Crime Prevention Society discovered two stolen vehicles in the Wally area, one of them on fire. SCPS programs engage young people in the community. Volunteers patrol the streets from 9 p.m. to 2 a.m. four nights a week, working with police to make a difference. Still ahead, more health care diversions. The latest service reduction on Vancouver Island as staffing shortages persist. Plus, the controversial win by the province's top doctor. Stay with us. The Island Health Authority continues to struggle with higher than normal numbers of staff off sick, forcing a temporary ICU closure this week and a second weekend of service reductions at Port McNeil's hospital. As Kristen Robinson reports, the small North Island town has also secured a public meeting with health officials. Port McNeil Hospital, which serves the town's 2,400 residents and those in outlying communities, seeing another service reduction. From 7 p.m. Friday to 7 p.m. Saturday, ambulances, says the mayor, diverted to Port Hardy while the local ER remained open. 
it's becoming a little bit more uh, regular. Uh, hopefully it's not every weekend. Last weekend, a nursing shortage temporarily closed the emergency department for 12 hours. Those needing care, again sent to Port Hardy 30 minutes away. In March, a doctor shortage closed the ER for 12 hours. For us, if there's two or three missing, it can be 50% of the staff. Or in Alert Bay, it might be their entire nursing staff. And so that's really what you're seeing happening here. Locals so concerned, the town pressed for a community forum with Island Health. On June 16th, Northern Vancouver Island residents are invited to participate in a Zoom meeting on health care and services. We were answering all the questions, but we said it's time for Island Health to come and give clarity to the situation and help people understand what's happening in our region. Nanaimo Regional General Hospital's intensive care unit also temporarily closed earlier this week. Island Health says the decision to move ICU patients to the hospital's high acuity unit on the afternoon of June 2nd was made due to COVID-19 activity within the ICU at NRGH and temporary staffing challenges. Yes. BC's health minister says more nursing school seats have been added as the government works on a more comprehensive plan. We're working with the doctors at BC to deal with uh, issues of retention of current doctors and recruitment of current doctors. This problem that we're facing right now is not going to be solved overnight. For now, Port McNeil's mayor says her town will continue to navigate hospital diversions and service reductions to ensure residents get the health care they deserve. Kristen Robinson, Global News. The Victoria Hospitals Foundation is fighting back after online critics slammed a well-known winner of an early bird draw. The foundation announced this week that Dr. Bonnie Henry, the provincial health officer, won an e-bike. She was chosen at random for the early bird prize and the announcement ignited a firestorm on Twitter, prompting the foundation to delete the post. Today, the foundation is firing back, saying Henry bought one of more than 4,200 tickets in time for the early bird draw and won the e-bike fair and square. Still ahead, treating victims of indiscriminate shelling. Related to shelling, uh, not only shrapnel, but also to a blast. The BC doctor deployed to Ukraine to help train hospital staff treating mass, mass casualties. And a look at Russia's miscalculations 100 days since its invasion of Ukraine. The first 100 days of the war in Ukraine have not gone as expected, least of all for Russia's president. What many envisioned as a swift Russian conquest has developed into a long and bloody conflict. Global's Eric Sorensen looks at how and why Vladimir Putin so badly misjudged the war he wanted. What Vladimir Putin called a special military operation was in fact his declaration of war on Ukraine. Russian forces struck from the air and on the ground and from all directions. Ukrainian cities were bombarded, civilians killed, and tens of thousands panic-stricken Ukrainians began flooding across all its borders. The Russian soldiers, they kill children, she says, they bomb schools. At first, it looked like Russia would swallow Ukraine and decapitate its government. Putin and others thought the capital, Kyiv, would fall within days. It was a gross miscalculation. 
the Ukrainians fought back, supported by arms and intelligence from NATO, even sinking a major Russian warship. Putin also underestimated President Volodymyr Zelensky, who many thought would flee. We are here, said Zelensky, with other government leaders, becoming a symbol and inspiration to Ukrainians. And Zelensky motivated nations around the world to help. Global leaders came together, and much of the world united to stand up to Russia. <laughs> Analyst Marcus Kolga says Vladimir Putin misjudged Ukraine, the West, and even Russia's military capabilities. I think he overestimated himself, uh, his generals that uh, surround him, and the ability of his forces. But for all that has gone wrong for Russia, there are no signs that Putin is losing his grip on power that he can and will fight on. We assess President Putin is preparing for a prolonged conflict in Ukraine. In the first 100 days, Ukraine has withstood an onslaught. And if the next 100 become a grinding war for territory, one question looms. What would each side accept to bring about peace? Eric Sorensen, Global News, Toronto. A Vancouver doctor has had first-hand experience of the war in Ukraine. He's just returned from the conflict zone after teaching civilians on how to treat the wounded in the war. Paul Johnson reports. Uh, uh, on one day, uh, after shelling of people leaving uh, a factory uh, and waiting for the bus, uh, we had 16 people coming in a very short time. Just back from eastern Ukraine. Vancouver-based Dr. Pyotr Mikhailovsky shares his first-hand account of the kinds of injuries the Russian military is inflicting on civilians. Injuries uh, uh, related to shelling, uh, not only shrapnel, but also to uh, blast uh, damage. Uh, things like uh, open fractures uh, because of the wall, walls falling on someone. On a six-week mission with Doctors Without Borders, Mikolovsky helped to train surgeons and nurses in small hospitals treating civilians only a few dozen kilometers from the front lines, sharing best practices on how to triage patients in mass casualty events and how to do surgical damage control. The typical, it's just victims of indiscriminate shelling. Indiscriminate shelling of civilians. The Russians have downplayed and denied, but having helped treat the wounded, Mikolovsky has this to report. If you want to be very uh, kind to, uh, to Russian side, you would say that they are using uh, very unprecise uh, ordinances. Uh, but I don't uh, see the reason to be very kind. And I think it's very purposeful strategy of scorched earth uh, uh, tactics and completely indiscriminate shelling of... Uh, um, uh, living quarters for people of people, uh, and there's no sanctuaries of any sort. Paul Johnson, Global News. Jurors in the sexual assault trial of Canadian musician Jacob Hogard are still deliberating the case for a fifth day. The jury has twice told the court it cannot reach a unanimous verdict on some of the counts in the case, but the judge has asked them to keep trying. Last night, jurors asked the court to replay the testimony given by Hogard and the second complainant regarding their encounter on November 22nd. It was in 2016. They continued listening to it today and also requested to hear part of the first complainant's testimony. They're expected to continue listening to that recording on Sunday. The frontman for the band Headley has pleaded not guilty to two counts of sexual assault causing bodily harm and one count of sexual interference.
In Health Matters, lots of people out to support the annual Move to Cure ALS walk in Richmond this morning. Participants helping to raise money while building a support network for those who are living with ALS. Through Project HOPE, the ALS Society of BC is funding one clinical lab to work on finding a cure. So far, the society has raised $93,000 with their goal of $135,000 in reach. Since the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge, there's many promising clinical trials that are coming down the research pipeline. And with Project HOPE at UBC, we are now going to be bringing those clinical trials right here in British Columbia to put all our efforts into finding a cure for ALS. Yvonne's in for the full forecast after this break. But first, the weather system that soaked and flooded parts of South Florida. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. A large weather system that battered Mexico has moved east and is triggering widespread flooding and causing heavy rain to fall in Cuba, Florida and the Bahamas. As Global's Jennifer Johnson reports, this latest downpour is already leaving behind a trail of devastation, killing at least two people. Tropical storm Alex turned Havana streets into rivers. Cars and buses were idled by high water. Damage was widespread as relentless rains flooded street-level homes and businesses. The island, along with the Florida Peninsula and the Bahamas, are under severe weather warnings as Alex moves through the Atlantic Ocean. Floridians lined up to get sandbags to keep floodwaters out of their homes. Well, last time we had so much water, I had water go through my garage, so I want to make sure I protect my, my home. Right here. I have all my batteries. This is full of batteries here. Residents are prepared for power outages as South Florida is soaked and heavy winds kick up. The U.S. National Weather Service says 28 centimeters of rain fell on downtown Miami Saturday morning. As a true Floridian, I already have some basics at home. I have my water, a couple of like cans of condensed milk in case we need it. South Florida's Water Management District is releasing billions of gallons of water from canals to lower levels and help with drainage after the rains stop. But officials are warning residents to be careful. Whether you're driving, walking, it is never a good idea to walk or drive into flooded areas as water may be deeper than it appears, hiding all kinds of hazards like debris, sharp objects, or even down power lines. This storm began in Mexico as Hurricane Agatha. She was the strongest hurricane on record to hit Mexico's Pacific coast in May, leaving at least 11 dead and several others missing. Hurricane season officially began June 1st. Experts are predicting an above-normal year, the seventh in a row. Jennifer Johnson, Global News, Washington. Wow. Okay, well, focusing in on our regional forecast, bringing back meteorologist Yvonne Shell for a look at what's ahead for the weekend. Now we're tracking wet weather. We're already starting to see that rain across Metro Vancouver. It'll pick up and intensify, and we've got 5 and up to 10 millimeters tonight, and additional amounts for tomorrow, and I'll show you that in just a moment. We're currently sitting at 17 out of the airport. We've got that rainfall. It'll start to pick up heavier at times, though, as we get in towards this evening, and there's that swath and wave of moisture that we're seeing right along the Sunshine Coast, and it's approaching the island as well. We'll continue to see it heavy at times. 
times overnight and in towards our Sunday morning. So a heads up, you'll need that umbrella for tomorrow. And a few isolated showers and some instability has popped up for the southern interior. We're also seeing that risk of thunderstorms. Now overnight tonight, we'll be down to 13 degrees. We'll see that rainfall, an additional 10 and 15 millimeters leading in towards tomorrow morning. By the afternoon, it'll be a 40% chance for some showers and temperatures climbing up to 17 degrees. There's that wave. And then through the afternoon, the concern will be for the interior. We're actually looking at some instability and the risk of thunderstorms that'll pop up across the region. Hail is a potential. We could potentially see hail rather and very windy conditions with gusts of up to 40 kilometers per hour. So lots of instability and active weather. And with that, the warming temperatures, increasing the snow melt and runoff across the region. We mentioned the flood watch. And once again, it's extended now or upgraded for the Skeena River. And we're seeing it into the Thompson, Kelowna and Boundary regions as well. And with the flood watch, the river levels are rising and will approach or may exceed Bankful. So that's a big concern with it peaking for the latter half of our weekend and potentially leading in towards our Monday. So we'll be keeping a close eye. Now, precipitation and rainfall amounts. We still have an additional 10, potentially up to 20 millimeters. That's the range for most areas on top of that with the runoff and snow melt. So that's why we've got that flood watch and the high stream flow advisory for many areas across the region. But the rainfall through the day tomorrow should taper off by the afternoon and early evening hours. So lots of instability through the day tomorrow. We'll have that risk of thunderstorms. It'll extend in, inland. Most areas for the central and southern interior will be included within that. And windy conditions through the day tomorrow with even gusts of up to 40 kilometers per hour. A cooler day tomorrow with Whistler just getting up to 15 as a daytime high. Rainfall, a soggy one for all areas along the south coast. And we'll see that instability even popping up for eastern areas and extending into the Fraser Valley with that risk of thunderstorms. We've got that initial 10 and up to 15 millimeters for most areas across Metro Vancouver. It'll be a cooler one tomorrow with highs just up to 17 degrees. A clearing as we get in towards the overnight for our Monday, Tuesday. Those look to be the nicest out of the bunch. And Nithu, even on Tuesday, those temperatures temperatures away from the water getting up to 23 degrees so it's warming up as well. Midweek looks fantastic. Thanks Yvonne. The BCSPCA's Wild Animal Rehabilitation Centre outside Victoria has a new guest. This yellow-bellied marmot is in the care of Wild Ark in Machosan after hitching a ride from the mainland in a car engine. The marmot was found on the loose in Saanich. Marmots are excellent hitchhikers but not naturally found on the island. This one will be sent back to Metro Vancouver in a few days to be reunited with its own kind. Safe travels, little buddy. He got sent back. He didn't pay the fare, so they <laughs> yes. thought, we're going to send you back. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Speaking of travels, Barry DeLay is off, and Asa Raymond is joining us this weekend. Asa, good to see you. Yeah, Nita, good to see you as well. We have uh, a lot to cover in sports today. Some news on the Canadian men's national team was scheduled to, to play tomorrow at BC Place. Uh, speaking of BC Place, it's... Busy all weekend. The Vancouver Whitecaps in action. Their match against RSL just wrapped up, so we'll have those highlights coming up as well. Looking forward to it. All right, thanks, Asa. Also ahead, surging handgun sales. How some store owners are in limbo with new legislation looming. Stay with us. issues with scammers, price gougers, corner cutters, con artists, or big business bullies. Help is here. Andrewa investigates consumer matters on Global News. 
A Calgary gun and ammunition store owner says handgun sales in the city have skyrocketed following the Liberal government's announcement over gun legislation. Global's Carolyn Curry de Castillo has more. Ronald Clements went to two sporting stores in Calgary on Saturday on a quest to buy a handgun, but was told they were sold out. It's pretty rare. I mean, it's kind of like looking for hen's teeth. Then he popped into the shooting edge where his fortunes turned around. This is the most that I've seen. These shelves used to be packed with handguns, but they were sold out this week. All that's left are the used ones people have brought in to sell. This firearm right here came in about an hour ago. An hour ago, we did up the paperwork for this to put it out on the line and it's already gone. All the stores in Calgary were just crazy. The owner of the shooting edge says between store and his Toronto store, 1,000 handguns were sold this week. They are owned by lawful firearms owners, so they're unloaded, they're locked up. People have to make sure they go from the their house to a range and back. Like, they can't carry them around. This, this isn't the United States, right? We already have very strict rules. The federal government announced on Monday it had tabled legislation that seeks to freeze the buying, selling and importing of handguns. The measure doesn't ban handguns outright, allowing existing owners to continue to possess them. Well, I do have a new one, but I, I, yeah, I just want to have a second one. And, and uh, it's always nice to have different guns to use, and, and especially here, right? You come here, you target practice and people want to have access to their guns. Uh, you know, it's it's a sport like anything else, and a hobby, and whatever you want to deem it as, right? And, and it's not legal handgun owners that are the problem. At this point, gun store owners are left wondering if they should take a gamble and restock the shelves. Do we buy more? Because the legislation is very clear that when the sales stop, there's no compensation. To purchase a handgun in Canada, a person must have a restricted firearms license. Carolyn Curry de Castillo, Global News. Coming up, Asa's in with the full sports cast, including why the Canadian men's soccer team is refusing to train over a contract dispute. I think there are still questions that need to be answered here. This was a high-risk, high-reward strategy. So we wanted to set the record straight. But at the end of the day, we talk, and where we talk is right here at CKNW. Don't miss the BC Lions home opener. BC Lions face Edmonton for the season kickoff on June 11th. Catch pregame festivities including a concert by Grammy-nominated One Republic, the BC Lions Backyard Street Party, and an exciting new halftime performance by the dance team. Head to Britannia Mine Museum this summer and visit the exhibit that reflects on how Britannia residents enjoy their recreational life during the mining days and how social gatherings strengthen the remote community. For our BC, I'm Michael Newman. Our BC is brought to you in part by Return It. Make sure to bring back your drink containers to a Return It Express. It's easy. There's no sorting and no lineups. All right, Ace this here for the full sports cast on another busy day and starting with a soccer strike. Yeah, it's an interesting situation, uh, something that I was dealing with yesterday, actually, when I was uh, at their training, it was supposed to be their training, so a quickie recap on what went down. Canada's men's national team was supposed to train yesterday for tomorrow's scheduled friendly against Panama at BC Place, but after waiting at UBC for several hours, we were eventually informed by Canada Soccer that the training was cancelled without any explanation. Well, now we know why. TSN's Rick Westhead is reporting that the team refused to train because of a dispute over player compensation, and it sounds like the two sides are pretty far 
far apart. Canada Soccer is proposing the players receive 10% of the money received from FIFA for qualifying for the upcoming World Cup, while the players are reportedly seeking 40%. So there's currently no update on the status of tomorrow's match against Panama. There was a game today, though, second annual Indigenous Peoples match at BC Place. Whitecaps hosting RSL. Women's national team member Julia Grosso taken in the action as well. 31st minute, long throw from Jake Nowitzki. It's flicked on before Ranko Veselinovic, easy for me to say, gets a touch on it, sees it over the line. His first goal of the season, Vancouver up 1-0. The second half now, Sergio Cordova's header turned aside by Cody Cropper. Incredible save, but just a few seconds after that, save RSL with a very direct approach here. Long ball over the top. Justin Miriam gets on the end of it and slides it past Cropper. Tie game 1-1. Then at the hour mark, Cropper called upon once again. He was really good in this game. He makes not one save, but two. The second one denying Cordova in close. And that uh, kept them off the score sheet there. Whitecaps with a chance to take the lead now. Tosin Ricketts is played through. He scores. That's the good news. Unfortunately, though, he's ruled offside. Replay showing that he is indeed offside on that one. Then in stoppage time, Luis Martins dropped inside the box. Referee immediately pointing to the spots. It's a penalty for the Caps and a red card for Herrera. Ryan Gold needed to, needed to convert from the spots. And just like that, he does. Fine finish from him. Whitecaps going to win this one 2-1. All right, to the other former football, BC Lions uh, played their final exhibition game last night. Only a couple of games to figure out their roster. Both Nathan Rourke and Michael O'Connor seeing significant playing time last night against Saskatchewan, and they both did fairly well. Rick Campbell uh, hoping to get a win in this one. Lucky Whitehead, Nathan Rourke figuring things out early in this one. Dominic Rimes here picking up the uh, 45-yard pass from Rourke. He's dropping that one right in the bucket. Leading to a, a TD here, Ryan Burnham, Brian Burnham rather, two-yard TD catch from Rourke, 12-10 Saskatchewan at halftime. Rourke was 13 for 19, 145 yards and a touch. Bruce Anderson, nice little 19-yard catch on this TD drive. Yeah, BC Lions looking pretty good. Last night at PC play, Josh Pearson, 24-yard 24, 24 TD catch from Michael O'Connor. That made it 17-12 in the third quarter. O'Connor, 13 for 15, 151 yards, and a touch. Northern Rourke, Rourke, Nathan Rourke all smiles as well. So great uh, way to get ready for the season over. Meanwhile, in the NHL, Oilers down 2-0 in their series with the Avalanche, but they haven't lost at home, so they're still in this series, right? Especially when you have Connor McDavid. Getting the home fans into it. Just 38 seconds into this game, he scores. What a goal it is. Then Nathan McKinnon has the opportunity to tie it up, but he hits the post. And then this bad mistake from Mike Smith here. He's beaten tight. Not much of an angle to shoot at, but uh, Valerie Nishushkin does score from that tight angle, and that made a 1-1. And then he adds a second to make it 2-1. So the Avs with a 2-1 lead there in the second period. All right, French Open women's final featuring 2020 French Open champion and number one seed and world number one, Iga Swiatek against 18-year-old Coco Goff. Goff 
just weeks removed from celebrating her high school graduation, playing in her first Grand Slam semifinal. Slam final, rather, it'd be Vancouver's Rebecca Marino in the first round. Svialtek, though, dominating this match. Powerful winner to take the opening set 6-1. Goff, pretty nervous to start. Settled in in the second set. Svialtek, though, breaking Goff five of ten opportunities. Svialtek has now won 35 straight matches, tying Serena Williams' WTA, WTA record, as she claims her second French Open title, doing it in straight sets, 6-1, 6-3. And she hasn't lost a match since February. Hopefully my celebration is going to be just having a week off and lying in bed and just watching TV shows and eating whatever I want because, yeah, I mean, uh, all these tournaments, we, I didn't really have time to rest properly, so right now I want to use the some days. I hope my coach is going to give me some more. Should be a good I one. can go for that, hanging out, watching TV shows. Sounds all right. Uh, meanwhile, the Richmond Olympic Oval Canada Cup wheelchair rugby tournament taking place. Canada hosting the world's best rugby clubs. Canada opening 3-0 at the events. They beat Australia to open up the tournament, then beat Denmark 54-36 last night, then earlier today defeated Great Britain 53-40. They're facing Japan now. Uh, the bronze medal match goes tomorrow at 10.30. Gold medal match at noon. All right, third round of the Memorial Tournament. World's Former number one, Jason Day, who lives in Westerville, has this incredible shot. Check it out. Second shot on the third hole. That's an eagle. He shoots a 68, three under par. Well, back of the leader, though, Billy Horschel created some uh, separation at the top with shots like this. His 765 got him to 13 under, five clear of Aaron Wise and Cameron Smith. He was on fire, and it's, it's going to be tough to beat tomorrow. That's it for sports. So uh, a lot going on and we will have Fraser Valley Bandits highlights at 11 o'clock as well. So make sure you tune in for that. Absolutely. All right. Thanks very much, Asa. And we'll be right back with more on how a monarch milestone is going ahead without the guest of honor. Stay with us. If you want to know, it's on the hub. If you want to know, it's on the hub. If you want to show, it's on the hub. If you want to go, it's on the hub. The Global BC Community Hub. Navigate your now. Thousands have flooded the streets of London this weekend to celebrate the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. As usual, there is a lot of the expected pomp and circumstance, along with an unexpected absence of the guest of honour. Global's Redmond Shannon has more. A nervy start to a huge weekend in London. Police carrying out a controlled explosion on a car in Trafalgar Square, less than a kilometre from Buckingham Palace. Apparently a false alarm. Across the UK, royals, young and old, touring on behalf of the Queen. Princess Charlotte conducting in Cardiff. Sophie and Edward attending Jubilee events in Belfast. At the prestigious Epsom Derby, Princess Anne awarding the trophy. A late stand-in for the Queen, resting after experiencing what the palace called some discomfort during Thursday's parade. It's three or four years when she came down in the Windsor. Instead, new footage released of the 96-year-old monarch tending to her horses in Sandringham. Would you like another one? 
her lifelong passion for horses visible, an indication she wouldn't have skipped the Derby without good reason. Of course, the Derby is an annual horse race, but this weekend is a one-off historic event, culminating in Sunday's pageant here along the Mall. But before that, Saturday night's party at the Palace. Canadian Deborah Davis came to sample the atmosphere, attending her third jubilee, having lived in London during the previous two. Oh, this is a bigger one. I mean, it's, she's you know been around for so much longer. Davis met the Queen on the Royal Tour of Canada in 1994. And we talked about her past visits to Canada, and she was just she was just darling. She was she was sweet and she was kind, and she makes people feel good. And the Queen did just that by kicking off the party in a recorded comedy sketch with Paddington Bear. But again, she didn't attend in person. The spectacular concert featuring performances from the cast of Hamilton, Sir Rod Stewart and Queen, the band. Redmond Shannon, Global News, London. Wow, what a shot to end off on there. A busy weekend indeed. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll have more coming up tomorrow on Global National as well with our Donna Friesen, who's there in London. Right now, though, let's focus in on what is coming up on tonight's newscast. You've got a busy night, Asa, in sports. What do you have coming up at 11? Yeah, I'm excited to show you the Fraser Valley Bandits highlights. Spoiler, they won their home <laughs> opener. So, yeah, you definitely want to stick around and see those highlights. It should be fun. Exciting. Okay. And I was looking at the forecast uh, for this weekend. Things are up in the air all over the place, and it seems like they'll even out midweek. Yeah, there will be a nice reprieve on the way, but we really need to get through, especially uh, late this evening. The rain is going to intensify overnight. That'll likely take us in towards the morning hours for tomorrow. We still have additional 10 and up to 15 millimeters. That should be the range even extending into the southern interior. And a heads up for the Fraser Valley tomorrow. We'll also be looking at that risk of thunderstorms. So lots of instability as we round off tomorrow. And then an improvement. These are the days that we're really focusing and honing in on. It's Monday, Tuesday, with the sunshine, dry conditions, it'll clear out across the region. Tuesday, that temperature even away from the water getting into the low 20s, we're looking to get up to 23 degrees. By Tuesday night, we may have more cloud cover, should remain dry, and then it's Wednesday, Thursday. If we once again, it'll be a bit of a mixed bag as we get in midweek onwards. But for tomorrow, heads up, it'll be a soggy start to the morning and then an improvement on the way for our Monday. Keep all of your footwear handy. Yes. You'll need all of it this week. <laughs> Thanks very much for sharing some of your weekend with us all. Chris Dell will be here at 11 as well. Have a good night. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.